So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Twenty years ago, on the morning of September 11th, 2,977 men and women were getting ready to go to work either in the World Trade Centers, they were boarding American Airlines Flights 11 and 77, they were boarding United Airlines Flights 93 and 175. They were getting ready to go off watch or go on to watch. All these people had two things in common. First, they would all enter into eternity on that day. And second, they did not expect to do so. They did not think that would be the day they entered into eternity. Heaven and hell are real. Salvation and judgment are real. These are inescapable things. One day, each and every person will enter into eternity. Equally true is the fact that we do not know when that will happen to us. With these facts in mind, we can ask the question, are you prepared? Are you prepared today to enter into eternity? In this passage that we have been studying, we have seen that because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, because of that, we should be praying for the salvation of all men. The truths that all men need to come to are found in verses 5 and 6, and they can be expressed in three statements. Number one, there is one God. Number two, there is one mediator, Jesus Christ. And number three, there is one sacrifice for sin. Now, what do these truths have to do with salvation? What do they have to do with people entering into eternity? Why should those who died on 9-11 have accepted and believed these truths? Why should all men today come to accept and believe these truths? The reason is that these truths have to do with salvation. They are an integral part of the salvation message. The gospel message contains information. It has information in it that must be understood, it must be accepted, and it must be believed. Uh, this morning, we are going to look at the first two truths that we see here that all men are to come to. This is found in verse 5. And first of all, here in verse 5, and this is where your notes and your bulletin pick up, I want us to see there is only one God. So truth number one, there is only one true and living God. It's interesting when you uh, look at verse 5 here, actually 5 and 6 now, was a couple of Thursdays ago, 
we were talking about how to study the Bible and we were going through the different aspects or types of literature that's in the Bible and we were talking about poetry and I said you know there's lots of poetry in the Old Testament but not much poetry in the New Testament. Well some Bible scholars they look at verses 5 and 6 here and they call this a hymn. Well I don't know if it's a hymn or not but it seems to be poetry to me. So let, let me read this like I would be reading poetry. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, it doesn't match English poetry that well, but it would match poetry in uh, Greek pretty clearly. One of the other things that I want you to see in this particular verse is that there is an emphasis on the word one. There's an emphasis on the word one. You can't see it in your English Bibles, but in the, in the Greek New Testament, it's very clear because the word one begins the verse. It says, uh, one God, one God. And then when you get to the second part of verse 5, and it talks about the one mediator, it doesn't say, and one mediator, it says, one and mediator. So the emphasis there is on one. There is one who's going to fit these categories. And the first category we see is there is only one true and living God. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that there is only one true and living God? Uh, first of all, it means that all other views of God are wrong. All other views of God are wrong. You, you might say, wow, that's a pretty dogmatic statement. That's a pretty strong statement. All? I mean, you're, supposed to, you're not supposed to use all or never, right? <laughs> almost all, almost never, but you never use all or never. All other views of God are wrong. It's an unqualified all. And this is a strong statement. But just because it's a strong statement doesn't detract from the truth of it. Would you rather have a strong, true statement or a wishy-washy, gentle statement that doesn't express truth or covers the truth. We want the truth. And I think everyone would agree that the Bible not only supports the fact that there is one God, but here I think we see that the, the Bible will show us that all other views are wrong. And that's what I'm, I really want you to see that here under this point is to see that all these other views come into conflict with what the Bible says. They come into conflict not only with what the Bible says, but they come into conflict with common sense. Common sense. So look at the first wrong view. Pantheism. P-A-N-T-H-E-I-S-M. Pan. P-A-N. So if you're a cook, you can spell that, right? Pantheism is wrong. A pantheism is the view of God that says God is in everything and everything is in God. This means that only God exists. Only God exists and everything else is an illusion. It is some type of psychological conjuring. Now why is that wrong? Because the Bible tells us that God is totally other, totally separate, totally different than his creation. There is God and then there is his creation. That's two things, right? Um, the creation is not God. That's the view of pantheism. The creation is God. This view is also wrong because it denies the reality of heaven and hell. It denies the reality of right and wrong, denies the reality of pain and suffering, sin and salvation. Maybe you've heard of John Travolta. Maybe you've heard of Tom Cruise. They follow 
Scientology. Have you ever heard of Scientology? It is a religion. It is a belief system. Scientology is a kind of pantheism. And so when you ask those two men or anybody who follows Scientology, you ask them about suffering and pain. It's all in your head. It's not real. It's not real. And so pantheism is wrong because its view of God actually denies the existence of God. When God is everything, God is nothing. You can't have God if God is everything. The second view that is wrong is polytheism, P-O-L-Y, there in your notes, polytheism. Uh, Polytheism says there are many gods. Uh, In other words, uh, they would say the God of the Bible is just one of the gods that you have to choose from. Now, why is polytheism wrong? Well, first of all, I mean, we're taking for granted that the Bible says it's wrong. But it's also wrong because it uh, denies the very meaning of the word God. God, that term by definition, refers to the greatest, highest being imaginable. Even if someone says God and they don't mean the true and living God, when they say God and they're referring to a being, they are referring to the highest, greatest being that they can imagine, the one who is at the top of the pyramid. Polytheism is wrong is because you can't have more than one of the greatest. You can't have more than one who is the highest. You can't have two greatest, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. One has to be greater than the other to be the greatest. Also, we see, according to polytheism, having multiple gods brings into question whether there can be absolutes. When you have multiple gods, there's the question of who am I accountable to? Who's the one who determines truth, right and wrong, and to whom am I accountable? Am I accountable to this God, that God, or this God? Who am I accountable to? You can't know. Polytheism, you can't know who you're accountable to. So ultimately, polytheism also denies the existence of God. Even though they claim there are many gods, their view of who God is, actually denies the very definition of what it means to be God. Then there's atheism. Atheism, that's our next view. A and then theism. This is wrong. Now we get our term atheism from a Greek word. Okay, Theism comes from the Greek word theos. Theos is the Greek word for God. And so theism simply means to believe in God. And in the Greek language, when you put an uh, alpha or letter A in front of a word, it negates it. So atheism or atheism means no God. And so atheism denies, out and out denies the very existence of any God. Not just the God of the Bible, they deny the very existence of any God. Uh, Atheism says that the only things that exist are those things that can be experienced with our physical senses. Seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, and smelling. That's the only things that exist. As you have to be able to use one of your five senses, those are the things that exist. Everything else is a figment of our imagination, some type of psychological crutch that we need to Uh, satisfy ourselves. Now, what's wrong with this? Well, number one, because without God, no satisfactory answer can be given for the existence of man. No satisfactory answer can be given for the existence of man in atheism. 
Where did man come from? Why is he here? Where is he going? Atheism doesn't answer any of those questions. Also, no satisfactory answer can be given for absolute moral values. Right, wrong, good, evil, love, truth. In atheism, those are all things of our imagination. There's nothing that's absolute. And so atheism is wrong. And it's wrong because it denies the very existence of God. Finally, agnosticism. Agnosticism. It's a little bit longer term that we don't use every day. It's spelled A-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Agnosticism is wrong. Now, this is also made up from Greek. It's made up from the word gnosis, which is knowledge or to know, and ah, a. So no knowledge, no knowing. And agnosticism says we cannot know if God exists. We cannot know God exists. So uh, in atheism, they deny God based upon their principles, based upon their principal beliefs. Agnosticism denies God in practice. They say you can't know God. Now, uh, why, why is that wrong? Well, number one, it's a position of ignorance. It's a position of uh, not knowing. They can't affirm anything. I mean, for the agnostic, you know, agnostic is for people who don't want to commit. All right? Anybody know friends that are very clear that they're agnostics? They're not atheists. They're just agnostics. You know people like that? I bet you you do. Agnosticism is like standing on top of a ball. Have you ever tried to stand on top of a big ball? Agnosticism is like standing on top of the big, a big ball, holding your hands out, atheism on one side, theism, the belief in God, on the other side. Now what happens when the atheist starts putting things in this hand? You're trying to stay on top of that ball. It starts pulling you that way, doesn't it? And then the Christian comes along and they start giving you evidence for the existence of God. And that starts pulling you this way. And the atheist is sitting there saying, I don't know. I can't make a decision. And so what you see there is that nobody can stand on top of that ball forever. You can't stand on it. You have to go one way or the other, and the agnostic will default towards atheism. They will default towards atheism because they accept the principle that only the material, only the physical exists. There's no such thing as a spiritual world, or if there is a spiritual world, I just don't know about it. And the only thing that I'm going to deal with is what I can see, taste, feel, touch, and smell. That's what the agnostic says. So ultimately, the agnostic denies the existence of God. All four of these erroneous views of God have the same basic failings. They provide no satisfactory explanation of the origins of all things, the reason for existence, the destiny of things, especially man, nor do they provide a satisfactory explanation of moral absolutes. Why is there right and wrong? Why is there good and evil? Why is there truth? Why is there love? They can't explain any of that. They also can't give an explanation for the spiritual or supernatural because they are locked in to seeing only what is in front of them. And so they deny what is actually happening in a spiritual world. There is only one view of God that makes sense of the world around us and is self-consistent. Only one view. All these other views that we have just mentioned, and there's more views, and, and there's, we could go on and on forever talking about different types of atheism, different types of pantheism, Go on. They all have the base, same basic problem. Their same basic problem is they do not, they cannot make sense of the world, 
They are self-contradictory when you look at them. They contradict themselves all the time. And they are not the view that is presented in the Bible. The view that is presented in the Bible makes sense. Do you realize that? Do you realize the things that the Bible says make sense of our world? They work. It actually works. What the Bible says works in our world. I think, I think all these views can actually be summed up in a passage of Scripture. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 14. Psalm chapter 14. Verse 1. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. This, this same verse is also found in Psalm 53. Or, yeah, Psalm 53, 1. But we're in Psalm 14, verse 1. Look what it says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Who is the fool? According to this verse, who is the fool? The fool is the one who says, who believes there is no God. They truly believe in their heart God doesn't exist. All four of the views we looked at this morning ultimately say there is no God. Now, what's the condition of this fool according to this verse? Look at what it says. It says they are corrupt. Uh, literally, it means they cause corruption and ruin. Think about all the destruction that is caused by those who do not believe there is one true and living God. Think about it. It goes on in the verse to say, they have done abominable works. Again, literally it says, they have caused abominable works to be done. The word abominable here could be simply translated as hateful. Think of all the hateful things that are done by those who deny the existence of the one true and living God. And the verse ends, there is uh, none who does good. When one denies God, there is the absence of good. When one in their mind extinguishes the existence of God, they are incapable of doing anything that is good. Now, you might protest at that and say, well, I know an atheist friend, I know an agnostic friend who gives to the poor, volunteers at the hospital. I know doctors and nurses who claim to be agnostics and atheists. And uh, they, they're doing good. And in answer to that, I would submit to you that if they believe there is the one true and living God does not exist, that in their mind there is a conflict. Because if they believe they are doing good, they believe in the value of good. Who sets the value of good? The one living and true God. And so they might, with their words, say they are atheists, but with their actions, they are admitting the existence of God. The foundation of any kind of meaningful life is the belief that there is only one God, the God of the Bible. And so this means that the atheist, agnostic, polytheist, the, the uh, pantheist, they cannot live a meaningful life. And they cannot live a meaningful life because in those belief systems, there is no meaning. It's meaningless. Their life is meaningless. Only the one true and living God provides meaning to our life. There is just one true and living God. All other views are wrong theologically, philosophically, and practically. 
Theologically, so biblically, they don't make sense. They're wrong. Philosophically, as far as our thinking and our worldview, they're self-contradictory. Practically, they just don't work out in the world. You can't apply those views to living life. So what are some of the other results of there being one true and living God? This is point B. So now we're down to Roman numeral 1B. That's the word accountability. Accountability. There is only one to whom all men are accountable. Uh, the Bible is full of affirmations of this. Now, I've given you a list of passages there, I believe. You can look those up later. I just want to mention a couple. Uh, in the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 10. So, Malachi, where does Malachi fit in our Bible? Last book of the Old Testament. Last book of the... Now, that's important because look what Malachi says in verse 10. We have... Uh, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? So Malachi is the last revelation that God gives in the Old Testament. And here, Malachi assumes there is just one God. One God. And so he assumes the whole rest of the Old Testament shows that there is one God. In fact, if you look up the phrase, the Lord your God, it appears over 442 times in our Old Testament. And that phrase is emphasizing there is one God. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31, when Paul is speaking to the philosophers on the Areopagus, he tells them about the one true and living God, the God to whom all men are accountable. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6, Paul points out that even if there are so-called other gods, even if people believe there are so-called other gods, there is in fact only one true and living God. Just one. Just one. God of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 says, One God and Father of all. James chapter 2 verse 19. James is commending his reader for believing that there's one God. Do you remember what he says after that? The demons believe. The demons believe there is one God and they tremble. Why do the demons tremble? at the belief that there's one God? Because they know they are accountable to God. And so they tremble. They know what that accountability means. So the Bible states and affirms that there is only one who all men are accountable to. It is the one true and living God. This accountability provides for no less than six secondary things. Now, they're not secondary in importance, but they're secondary in the fact that they come out of this primary truth that men are accountable to God. Let me just run you down, down through these real quick. Knowing that you're uh, accountable, accountable provides... Or knowing that there is one God provides the knowledge that man is in fact accountable. It, that's number one. Number two, it provides for the understanding that there is a relationship between God and man. It tells us something about how we are to relate between God and man. Number three, it provides for the understanding of what that accountability is. What does it mean to be accountable to God? Knowing that you're accountable provides some understanding of that. Number four, it provides for knowing that when that, accountability, when that accountability is broken. So if you know you're accountable, you know you're accountable to God, you know this is about your relationship with God, now you also know when that accountability is broken. Uh, what am I on? Number five, it, pro it provides the penalty when that accountability is broken. 
So it's pointing us to these things. And finally, it provides for the restitution of broken accountability. It provides for conflict resolution. So knowing that you're accountable and you're accountable to the one true and living God now pushes us in the direction of understanding this accountability, understanding our relationship between us and God, understanding what happens when we break that accountability, understanding the penalty for breaking that accountability, and understanding what has to happen in order for there to be resolution to that broken accountability, where, what uh, needs to happen so our conflict with God can be uh, resolved. So the fact that there is only one true and living God means that all men are accountable to him. Next, I want you to see and think about absolutes. Absolutes. Under this heading, there is only one true and living God. There is one who determines the absolutes of the universe. What is truth? The answer to this question, which everyone thinks about, is the one who is the truth, the one true and living God. John 3, 33 says this. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. That God is true. God is truth. So God is truth. What is right and wrong? What is good and evil? How do we know what lying is? How do we know that lying is wrong? How do we know that murder is wrong? How do we know that immorality is wrong? It's because God is good, and anything that doesn't match his goodness, anything that doesn't match his glory is sin, is wrong. What is love? Where do we get our concept of love? How do we know what a loving act is when we see it? We know this because God is love. See, God is the one who sets our absolutes for us. He's the one who tells us this is right and this is wrong. And when God says right and wrong, they're always right and wrong. Truth, right and wrong, good and evil are not relative. They're constant. They're always the same. And God is the one who sets these. None of these things, right and wrong, good and evil, love, truth, none of these can be known unless there is one God. The truth that there is only one God is established by the Bible. It's true whether anyone actually accepts it or not. But what I want you to see is that the truth of the Bible always works in life. It's self-consistent, self-revealing, and this is kind of a, elementary way to put this, the Bible just makes sense. It just makes, that is a test, by the way. That is a test. Does it make sense? Does it work? The Bible works in life. Furthermore, this truth also means that all other views, whether it's about a different God, such as Islam, many gods, polytheism, or no god, atheism. It means that all these views are principally and practically false. Because there is only one God, it is he who all men are accountable to. It is he who all men offend with their sin. It is he who determines how this sin must be satisfied. It is he who can provide salvation. I think there is one verse. If I had to pick one verse to sum up this point, it would be Jeremiah 10.10. Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. How can you be prepared for eternity? You must know there is one God. You must know the one to whom you are accountable. Because of our sin, because of the separation that our sin causes between 
God and ourselves, between the one who we are accountable to, because of our sin, this separation is so great that God himself must provide us with a mediator, with a middleman, a go-between. This God-provided mediator is necessary because this great gulf between man and God cannot be crossed by man. Man is incapable of getting across it. And so now we move to the second part of our verse. And uh, what has happened was what I was afraid would happen is that point one becomes its own sermon. <laughs> but we're going to, I want us to go through point two real quick because I think, I think you all get this. I think you all get this. And so I just want to run through these points rapidly here. So first we have seen there is only one true and living God. Secondly here, in the second part of verse 5, we see that Jesus Christ is the one and only mediator between God and man. Notice what it says. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I've already said this, but the emphasis is on the word one. Our, in our world, at least in those who are in some way spiritual or religious, when you, when you ask spiritual people, religious people, uh, how can you get to God? One of the main answers they always give is that well, there's multiple ways you can get to God. It's not just one way. There's multiple ways that you can go to God, have a right relationship with God. This is called pluralism. Now, I hope you see from the fact that there is only one God that pluralism cannot be right. If there is only one God, he gets to set the standard for how to get to him. And he has set a standard. He has given us information about that. So pluralism is not right. And so this second gospel truth, the fact that Jesus Christ is the one mediator, reinforces the exclusive nature of salvation. And so I want us to look at this here real quick. So first we see in this part of the verse a statement of exclusivism. A statement of exclusivism. It says one savior. One savior or it's mediator. This rules out the possibility of any other mediator. So it, it's erroneous to say you can get to God by a different way. There is only one way to get to God through this one mediator. And so the question then that is immediately raised by the statement that there is one mediator is what? Who? Who is the mediator? That's, we're going to end with that answer. But here we have a statement of exclusivism. Next notice, we have the reason for the mediator. There's a conflict. There's a conflict. When two or more parties are in conflict, they often require a mediator. Uh, the mediator's job is to provide conflict resolution in a way that is most suitable for all parties involved. So a mediator here needs to be able to solve an unsolvable conflict. That's, that's the what this mediator is going to have to deal with, deal with this conflict. Uh, notice the task of a mediator. What's a mediator do? So uh, we know that a, a mediator comes in view when there's a conflict, but what's he supposed to do? Um, reconciliation is the term that I've chosen here. Reconciliation or uh, even uniting could be uh, used here. So a mediator is to bring together, is to unite, to bring into agreement. He reconciles parties. He acts as a middleman. He acts as a go-between between two parties who cannot meet. I'm sure you've probably read stories about things, especially in the Cold War with our government and the relation to the Soviet Union, where the United States and the Soviet Union could not be seen 
as talking together. And so they used other people to talk for them. Those other people were mediators. They were the go-betweens. They were the middlemen between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so they were trying to bring two sides together to be reconciled, to come to an agreement. Now, this word mediator is an interesting word. It appears six times in our Bibles, six times. And I give you the references there. Uh, you can look those up on your own. But in every single case, in every single case, is talking about Jesus Christ being the mediator between God and men. Each and every time this word is used, it's referred, referring to Jesus Christ being the mediator, bringing together man and God. So I've already kind of jumped the gun here a little bit because the next thing I want us to see is that the parties to be mediated in our verse here in 1 Timothy is between God and man. God and men. So there's two parties here, and, but we have to understand that these parties are not equal parties, right? They're not equal parties. There is an offended party, God, and the offending party, man. And for the offending party to be reconciled to the offended party, there has to be a mediator. There has to be a, a go-between. So the picture we get is that man has offended God to such an extent that he can't, on his own, come to God and even say, I'm sorry. There's such a great separation that sin causes between God and man. There must be a go-between. There must be someone who steps in between God, the offended party, and man, the offending party, that can bring man to God. So when you think about this, this is not like mediation in our court system. Mediation in our court system basically means both parties have to compromise. That is not what mediation is in the Bible in this sense, because God does not compromise. So God, in that sense, is not coming to man. Man has to be brought to God, but he can't get there without this mediator. And so we see the identification of the mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ. He is the one and only person who can be the mediator between God and man. He is the only way man can be reconciled to God, that man can get to God, that man can be made right before God. Now, why must this mediator be a man? Do you see the emphasis on the fact that the mediator is a human being? says, one mediator between God and men. Now, what's it say next? The man. It doesn't just say Jesus Christ. It says the man, Jesus Christ. Why must the mediator be a human being? Four reasons, I think, at least four reasons. First, so that the mediator can be sympathetic to the condition of man knowing firsthand what it's like to be separated from God. Secondly, since man is the one who committed the offense, it must be a man who pays the penalty for the offense. Since the penalty is death and man cannot die, or excuse me, God cannot die, a man has to die as a penalty. So that has to be a human being, a man who dies. Thirdly, this man who dies in the book of Isaiah is referred to as the suffering servant, the Messiah. The Messiah has to be a man because his activities are human. He's going to sit on the throne of David one day. That is a human activity. 
So this mediator, in order for him to do what he has to do, in order for him to do what the Bible says he uh, needs to do, he must be a man. And finally, the mediator must be a man because God has appointed a man to be the judge of men. We see this in John chapter 5, verses 22 through 27. So the mediator must be a human being, but the mediator must also be God. Three things. It says that the mediator here is the man, Christ Jesus. Often we just overlook that word Christ. But that's a loaded word. It's talking about the Messiah of the Old Testament. So everything that the Old Testament says about the Messiah, we have to understand when we see the phrase, the man Christ Jesus. And the Old Testament Messiah, uh, presents the Messiah as not just being a man, but being God in the flesh. And so the mediator has to be God. Secondly, in order for a man to offer a, a satisfactory sacrifice, he must be a perfect man. Now, who could do that? No one could do that. Only the God-man could do that because he is perfect in his nature and his actions. He is untainted by sin in nature and action. He must be qualified to make the payment, and only God could be qualified to make the fully satisfactory payment. Finally, in order for the mediator to be the mediator for all men... The mediator must have such great value that he can pay the penalty for the sins of all men. We'll see this in the next verse next week. But that is why the mediator must be God, because only God has that type of value and that type of worth. So how can you be prepared for eternity? You must know that there is only one true and living God, and you must know there is only one mediator, only one way that you can be made right with God, and that is through the man, Christ Jesus. On September 11, 2001, a group of 19 men attacked the United States. They hijacked four planes, two of which hit the World Trade Centers, one hit the Pentagon, and one was forced down in a field in Pennsylvania. What brought these men to the point where they would do such a thing? What motivated them? We know they were all part of Al-Qaeda. We know that they were all Arabs from the Middle East. And we know that they were all radical Muslims. And so why would these men do such a thing? Well, they had a common ideology. They were anti-Western, anti-United States in particular but they also had a common theology. And while I can't say that their theology was the sole basis for what they did, I can say it contributed to it and it allowed for it. So at least one of the issues that was involved with these terrorists doing this terrible act was their view of God, their view of who God is. The God of Islam, it's the God of power and authority. He is not the one true and living God. Never accept when someone says, Allah, God of Islam, is the God of the Bible. It's absolutely not true. Their names might be God. They might share the same name. They might share in the sense that Islam views Allah as the one true and living God, and we view the God of the Bible as the one true and living God, but that's the only similarities. From that point on, they are drastically different. Their character and their nature is radically different. The God of the Bible is the God of love. He is the God of sacrifice. He is the God of reconciliation. The God of Islam is the God of power and submission. There's nothing that he will not allow for in order to make people submit to him. The God of the Bible is greater than any other so-called God because even though he has the right and the power 
to do what he wants. He has chosen to love men. He has chosen to love them and give them his most precious thing. The thing that he values more than anything, his only son. There is one true and living God. And in light of the fact that all of us will one day step into eternity, and that day could be today, we don't know when it will be, do you recognize there is one God to whom you are accountable? Do you realize God has provided Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the mediator between himself and you? If you believe in any other God than the God of the Bible, you have the wrong God. And if you have the wrong God, you have the wrong way to get to God. You can't get to God. If you believe you can be reconciled to God by any other means than by the person of Jesus Christ, then that way just leads to hell. It does not lead to God. These are the truths of the gospel. And for us as believers this morning, we need to understand we are still accountable to God. But our accountability centers on serving him and living in a way that pleases him. Are you serving God? Are you serving the Lord? Can you think of a specific way you are serving the Lord? I always find that interesting because you can ask people a question. Are you serving God? Well, everybody's going to say yes. Any Christian's going to say yes. But if you say, can you think of a specific way you are serving God? All of a sudden, I have to stop and think about that. Can you think of a specific way you are serving God? You need to serve God. Would God be pleased with how you are living and how you are thinking? We are all accountable to God. Why don't you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer? Father, we give you thanks for this time that we've had this morning. We recognize that you are the one true and living God, and we recognize Christ Jesus, your Son, as the one mediator between men and yourself. We praise you and we give you thanks for that. Help us to always live, keeping the truth in mind that we are accountable to you. But help us always to live that Jesus Christ is our mediator. And if we know Jesus Christ is our savior, we have been reconciled to you. Help us rest in that fact. Lord, bless the rest of our time together, bless the Sunday school classes that we're going to have now. And Lord, help us to be a strong witness for you and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the world around us, a world that rejects you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.